Good morning, everybody. We are in week four of our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is essentially a first-century biography of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, each week we've been going through this, we've been kind of introducing the weeks off with a problem and then showing how Matthew addresses each of these problems. So if you've been here, you'll remember these, and this will be the last week where we sort of introduce a problem that Matthew is trying to resolve before we kind of move on with the teachings of Jesus. Saw something up there for a second. Uh, Week one, if you remember you were here, we addressed the issue of the line of David, namely that at the beginning of the first century, it appears as if the line of David is corrupted and or broken. And we talked about how Matthew begins his story with a genealogy, and that genealogy is the solution to that apparent problem. In week two, we talked about the tabernacle, this building, tent, inside of the kind of encampment of the people of God in the Old Testament. And we looked how at both the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, God would reveal his presence in a unique way, a special way. His presence would be manifested in a way that you could visibly see. There's this cloud of glory. Later, rabbis would call this the Shekinah glory of God, the dwelling presence of God with his people. The problem is that by the time you get to the first century, there's another temple built in Israel, and everyone sort of knows God's presence is there, but it's not there in the same sense as it was in the Old Testament. We talked about how the Christmas message is the solution to that, that Jesus is the living, walking, breathing temple. He is God with us. In week three, we looked at... Every week there's an issue with this. It works no matter how many times we run this thing and practice and test it so that we can keep track of things. And then we get to hear Sunday morning when it counts. And all you people who have secretly gotten our Wi-Fi passwords mess everything up. All right, I'm going to do one more. I'm going to try one more thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this app completely and try again. You know, at Hollister, it worked fine, man. <laughs> Week three, we talked about the imposter and how at the time of Jesus, there's someone else on the, the throne, King Herod, but he's not a son of David. He's not even a Jew. And he got that political power by bowing the knee to the Roman Empire. And we talked about how the Christmas message is bringing, like, the solution to that. And you see baby Jesus as being the true son of David. And in week four, we'll deal with this final issue of the forerunner. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. So if you were to open your Bible, the beginning of the New Testament has Matthew. You turn one page earlier, it's the book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi ends with some sort of cryptic verses that mysteriously point forward to a coming messenger, a forerunner. This is how it's said. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. 
so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Okay, for the rest of this sermon and for the rest of this series and probably for the rest of your life as you read the Bible, when there's images articulated and written, do your best to, in those moments, like actually picture them in your mind. And this will, will pay off in so many ways. So in this section, we have like images of judgment, but of fire and of, of roots and trees and branches. And it goes on, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. It goes on. And this is the ending of the Old Testament. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament ends in anticipation it's looking forward to a day when the prophet Elijah returns, at least in some sense. Now, Elijah uh, is sort of a picture of all the prophets. He's the quintessential prophet. And so oftentimes you'll see, thing, see phrases like Elijah and the prophets. If you were to take all the actions of the prophets and compress them into like a symbolic figure, it would be Elijah. And so people who are familiar with the Old Testament in the first century have an image in mind, an image of one like Elijah coming once again. But in addition just to the prophetic figure of Elijah, they have an actual picture of what he ought to look like. And we get that picture of what this Elijah ought to look like from the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1 begins with an evil king having a terrible fall. We don't have time to get into it, but suffice to say, evil king has a really bad fall, and he's messed up, man. He's like on his deathbed injured. And the evil king sends some of his men to seek out counsel from the false god Baal. And he sends his men to ask Baal, am I going to live or am I going to die? And so these men get sent to Baal to get this word. And as they're on their way, they get intercepted by the prophet Elijah. And Elijah's like, is there no God in Israel that you could seek answer from, that you go seek out Baal to find information about whether you will live, live or die? And then he says, go tell the king he will surely die. And the men go back. They tell the king, man, we're on our way to Baal. This dude intercepted us, and he said, you're going to die, man. The king responds, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of a hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. Okay. At the conclusion of the Old Testament, there's a cliffhanger, an unresolved plot hole. Elijah is supposed to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And people will know it's Elijah because they have an image in 2 Kings of how he looks. 
He looks like the wild man who is out in the wilderness, who pronounces judgment upon the evil kings and tyrants, and he has a garment full of hair and he wears a leather belt. So these images are in the mind of Old Testament readers. Now, to understand how this is truly working, it's kind of complicated, but Elijah the prophet gives that proclamation of death in roughly 850 B.C. Malachi, that last book of the Old Testament that we read, is writing in roughly 450 B.C. So Malachi in 450 B.C. is referring to a prophet that's been dead for 400 years who will one day come back before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Roughly 450 years pass to make us reach the first century when Matthew is writing. But what you have to understand this is Malachi saying Elijah from old will come back and now the people have been waiting for this to occur for over 450 years. So there's a great problem of where is the forerunner? Where is the messenger? Where is the Elijah of old? Now this is an image that's, that's one among dozens. There's all these images that are in the Old Testament that we're meant to picture in our minds and look forward to. One of the other ones, we don't have time to get in all of them, but I'll give you one of the more significant ones. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right. Remember, we're supposed to picture it, right? So there's a stump. And it's, why is it a stump? Because something has chopped it down. And you may be thinking, this stump may be dead. Who knows? But this stump is... Uh, called the stump of Jesse, of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse in the biblical story? Jesse is the father of David. So this is a cryptic way of saying this tree stump is representing the line of David or a descendant of David. And it appears as if this line is chopped down, broken, and dead. But it says a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So the tree's been chopped down, but it's not completely dead, and new life will come out of the trunk or the rootstock, and it will bear fruit. And you will know when you see this tree because the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, the tree is not a tree, it's a person. And you will know who the person is when the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. These are the types of images that are in the mind of faithful Israelites entering into the first century world. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So there's this man we're introduced to, John the Baptist. And he's out in the wilderness and he's saying you need to repent. In other words, you, you change your behavior. You turn from wickedness and you turn to God. And one of the things that he's crying out in the wilderness is this prophecy from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Isaiah. But what I want you to focus on is the word Lord here. This is something we've mentioned several times, but uh, it's so important. And there's so much more information we can get when, when we open our eyes to it. 
The New Testament is written in Greek, so it gets translated to English when we read it. New Testament written in Greek, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So this is the book of Matthew, it's in the New Testament, so it's written in Greek. However, it's quoting the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew. Now, if you go back in your Old Testament Bibles and look at this prophecy from Isaiah, you're going to notice that the word Lord here is in all capitals. And we've talked about this, that that's the translators letting you know that in Hebrew, that word for the Lord is Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of the God of Israel. Now, you following this. There's an inner logic here that's incredibly important. John is making the path straight for the Lord, and he's about to introduce to us the Messiah. But what is he crying out? He's not saying, I'm preparing the way for any old Lord or Messiah. He's quoting a prophecy that's referring to the God of Israel. In other words, John is saying he's preparing a path for God himself, which is the biblical author's way of telling you this Jesus who we're about to be introduced to is not just some ordinary man, an ordinary Messiah who's going to lead a revolt. This is the God of Israel in the flesh. There is a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, remember the images. Who is Matthew telling you is the Elijah to come? John the Baptist is Elijah to come. The image of the wild man in the wilderness pronouncing judgment upon wickedness with the garment full of hair and the leather belt. Now, uh, this isn't some like weird reincarnation thing where Elijah comes back and his new name is John. The, the idea of reincarnation is completely foreign to, to Old Testament theology. It's not even on the, the radar. What's taking place is the idea, is, is the idea that the same way and power and spirit that Elijah prophesied in is the same power and spirit that John comes in. They are two figures that are functioning in the exact same manner, so much that they even look alike and dress alike. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. And this is what's crazy. He's calling people from Jerusalem and all of Judea to go out to the Jordan with him and get baptized. Now, why is that important? Because in the first century world, Jews were not baptized. They had ceremonial washings and, and purification rituals, but to be baptized, that official kind of ceremony, that was reserved for pagan Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, you were a pagan, you worshiped multiple gods, you weren't, you, didn't, you weren't Jewish or anything like that, if you converted to Judaism, in order to do that, you would participate in baptism. So baptism was reserved for pagan Gentiles who were converting to come into the faith. Now, what is John doing? He's calling on all of Israel to come out and repent and be baptized. Otherwise, just because you're a son of Abraham, just because you're an Israelite, doesn't mean you're right by, with God by default. You too need to come and repent. And you've got to focus on his diet too. 
locusts and honey. It's the John the Baptist diet, which I'm completely shocked that no one has tried at this point to like market that gimmick. Because every other type of diet gimmick has been done. I mean, you got the Daniel diet, the Jesus diet, Old Testament diet, the Torah diet, all kinds. How come no one ever do the John the Baptist diet? I don't ever want to do the John the Baptist diet, man. You could think of it like this. You could already picture the, the infomercials, right? Late at night. You've tried everything. Still can't keep off the weight. Tried the John the Baptist diet straight from the Holy Land. You'll feel healthy and be like never before. And then the infomercials like the testimonials come in like, I lost five pounds doing the John the Baptist diet. And then some lady comes in, I lost 15 pounds in 15 days. After one day of John the Baptist diet, I lost my appetite completely. I didn't want to eat ever again. I just flying off of me, man. Now, some of you are like, nah, man. That doesn't sound too bad, man. I'll munch on some locusts and honey, right? Not too bad. Anybody down? Like you're like, like me? No? You're down, yeah? Probably be down. I could see you out in the wilderness eating the locusts. You know the good news is, though? I actually have some with me. Yeah, yeah. Like, let me get. Yeah, man. Here, look at this little guy. You want to come up and snack some with me? Yeah, come on. There's a little locust in high. Right here, man. It's a little snack, man. Just John the Baptist diet. I feel great. Kind of smoky. Not great. Oh, but hold on. You get your prize. You get a honey stick. You can check both of them. You got to wash that. that. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but I travel back and forth between services, which means I've done this illustration a few times. Seems by now I'm just, I'm just used to it, man. I'm just used to it. Multiple services. I'll leave these up here after service. If anyone wants to come and try the John the Baptist diet. I'm out of honey, though. It goes on. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Who wanted to come to church today and hear all that? You don't bear good fruit. You're a bad tree. God's going to chop you down and throw you into the fire. No one wanted to hear that. There's tons of stuff going on here. Let's just go through it piece by piece. First, it says that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming. A little bit of grasshopper still got to get down. Who's he addressing? We're going to learn more about the Pharisees and Sadducees as we move forward in this series. But suffice to say for now, they are the religious elite of the day. They're the, they're the, they're the top of the ladder. So these are the well-respected religious leaders, and John's calling them out. Like, who warned you, you brood of vipers? It's a direct insult. I know it doesn't sound like that insulting out of it. It's like, what does that even mean? 
but it would have been an insult, brood of vipers. And there may be an even greater insult embedded into this. So there's two historians that we, that we have documents from from the ancient world, uh, one named Plutarch and the other Herodotus, and they both make mention of this idea that many, there was like, uh, like an accepted tradition or folklore that said um, vipers, when, when the mother was birthing them, that they came to be is that the vipers on the inside would eat their way out of their mother. And so in order to, to be born, they ate their mom to death. They like ate their way out of, out of the snake. And so this is powerful, gross image, but think about what's taking place here. In order to advance oneself, the viper kills its mother. Follow this. In order to advance, you kill your mother. And so John is telling this, he's calling these Pharisees and Sadducees children of vipers. And so there may be a hint here that something like you advance yourself by killing Israel. You say you love Israel, you're a teacher of Israel, you care for Israel, you teach the law of Moses, but in reality, for selfish gain, you advance your own life by killing your mother, by killing Israel, by killing your own people. And he goes on and says, I know this because you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. In other words, just because, again, you're, you're a, a descendant of Abraham or David, that doesn't make you right with God. If you say you've repented, there ought to be good fruits that demonstrate that repentance. Good fruit, good deeds, good works. And right here we have to pause because many times in Christian circles and oftentimes with good motivation, but not always, people will immediately raise an alarm. As soon as someone starts talking and telling people, you know you have to have good deeds in your life. You know you got to have good works. You know you got to have changed behavior. You know you can't just keep living the same way you did. Someone immediately goes, hey, hey, that sure sounds a lot like legalism. You know, we can't be, we got to understand we're saved by grace. It's not a works righteousness type of thing. Some of you aren't familiar with that terminology. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But what I want to say is, yes, in Christianity, we teach you are saved by grace. Your works do not save you. God saved you in his mercy by grace. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin necessary. It took Jesus to forgive you, like nothing else, okay? Yes, saved by grace, a free gift of God. However, once you receive that grace freely and you receive a renewal and his spirit and you're, you're now you, you love God and you want to serve him, the Bible says there will be good fruits that demonstrate that. There will be evidence that you have had a changed life. So when I talk about like good deeds and good works and bearing good fruits, I'm not saying you must do things in order to be saved. I'm saying that if you love God, you will desire to obey his commandments. That's not legalism. That's called Christian living. It's called being a Christian. And you don't do it to earn something, you do it out of something that's been given to you. And so if you have no good deeds, no good fruit, all throughout the New Testament, they say, well, maybe the tree's bad. Maybe this person hasn't repented. And so John is using that language to the religious leaders of the day. You don't bear good fruit. 
and he anticipates the response, where we're children of Abraham. He says, God will raise up children of Abraham from the stones. Which is scary because the, the modern parallel would be something like this. Um, just because you're an Israelite didn't make you right with God. Just because you were raised Christian doesn't make you right with God. Just because you were raised Christian and in, are in church on a Sunday morning doesn't mean you're right with God. And if we were to go further with it, talking about the religious leaders, just because you're a pastor preaching on a Sunday morning doesn't mean you're right with God. Your credentials, your degrees, your experience, none of that will justify you before God. You don't just get in because of your background. Grace through faith. And then there's evidence of that. And it doesn't mean like you become a super Christian overnight, like you got all this, you know, some of you know it's been five years and you've made just a couple little crab apples. A couple little crab apples, but there's some fruit to show from it, man. There's at least something. And in time, you want, you want to produce more. You know, you want to bear more fruit for God. So I don't want to, I don't, we're going to transition from these nasty crab apples to something a little less gross, red delicious. But it's getting better. We're getting in the realm. You keep working and growing sanctification. Get to the realm of like some Granny Smiths and them honey crisp apples and delicious ones, you bear more good fruit. Some, some of it, it's, it's just a little. Sometimes there are seasons that are bad seasons. But if the tree has life, there's going to be something there. And then this last image is incredibly powerful. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear, bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, think in images. There's an axe being laid to the root of the tree. This isn't like the creation of a stump, right? You can chop down a tree and still leaves the stump. John is saying this axe is at the very root. It's to cut off the life source. And anything that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire. He goes on, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Man, more encouraging verses. So what's the image here? It's the threshing floor image. So picture this stage like a, like a giant concrete floor. And what would happen is at harvest time, you'd pick a bunch of wheat and you'd spread it out on the floor. And then you'd bring an oxen, and they would trample on the wheat over and over again. And what that would do is it would separate the wheat from the husk or the chaff, um, which is great because you want to separate these things. But now the next problem is now you have a big giant floor where there's a bunch of wheat separated from chaff and the husk, but they're still all in the same big pile. And so you'd get something called a winnowing fork, which is similar to a pitchfork but a little different, and you'd scoop it and you'd throw it up in the air. And these threshing floors were usually located on hills or where there would be places with small breezes. So that as you throw it up, the wheat, which is heavier, falls straight to the ground and the husk on the outside just drifts away in the breeze. And so you have this natural way of separating the wheat from the husk. John is saying there is a holy one coming, a one who is holy, who brings righteousness and a righteous judgment with him and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. 
and you will know who's who. All will be revealed. And that setup to the Holy One then brings us to the introduction of Jesus. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. This is a little bit of a weird passage. There's a lot of confusion on this because in Christianity, we hold to the belief that Jesus was perfect and he lived a sinless life. And then the question is, well, why is he going out and getting baptized then? Um, and John sort of knows this too. John says, like, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to hold your sandal type of thing. That was a, a position reserved for the slave, by the way. The slave would hold the sandal of the, 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 the master in those days. And in this case, John said, I'm not even worthy to, to be a slave to this man. But Jesus essentially says, it is it, it's thus fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John agrees. So some people would say that Jesus is giving us an example for Christian life. Some people here would say that there's all this stuff in the Old Testament that John, uh, that Jesus must fulfill, and baptism is one of those, so he's fulfilling all of these things. This is another interesting idea. It's a little unique, but, it, but it's interesting. Some would say that even though Jesus is righteous, he is functioning as a substitute for Israel in this instance. So Israel is full of sin. And Jesus, as a representative of Israel, is going to be baptized. Like in, in their place type of thing. Now, first that sounds kind of weird, but now think about, think about it. Does Jesus, in another instance, function as a substitute for the sins of his people? Oh, okay. So whatever those issues may be, whatever the right answer is, at this church, one thing that we like to say, and this is my plug to get baptized, just some light pressure on the Sunday morning as we're talking about judgment. Um, it's like, if, if even Jesus went and got baptized, you probably should get baptized. Because, you know, I know you only got a couple crab apples going on, growing on in them fruit, man. And Jesus is a whole bountiful tree, man, and he still went got baptized. So that's my plug. Go get baptized. Goes on. The, the last image. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well, pleased. Remember, we're supposed to be thinking in images. Nonstop images. Goes into the waters. The heavens open up. The Spirit of God descends like a dove, comes to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you picture this, you begin to see that it's not just Jesus who is there, but the entirety of the Trinity is there. You have the Father and the Spirit. And they are both there looking down upon Jesus. Now, let's break this down. 
There are like a thousand allusions and references taking place, but I just want to show you a couple. First with the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit do in the scene? The Spirit descends, right? And what does it do? What does the Spirit do? It rests upon Jesus. It rests upon Jesus. Now, all throughout this passage, what are the images in our minds? Trees, stumps, branches, fire, fruit, righteousness, one who is coming. If you were a faithful Jew at this time, you would have these images in your mind because you've been reading the scriptures over and over again, and you know how they all kind of reference each other and allude to each other, and the images of tree stumps and branches and sticks and fruits and axes and fire all going on in your brain, and now all of a sudden, you hear about one who has the Spirit come and rest upon him. All the while, John has been talking about fruit and branches and trees and axes. Now remember where we started. Isaiah 11 the hope found in an image. There's a tree stump, a tree stump. And it appears as if this tree has been chopped down and the tree is Jesse. It's representative. And it says that this tree, though, is not dead. It will actually have new branches and it will bear fruit. And you will know who this tree is because it's a person. It says it's a he. You will know who this tree is because the Spirit of the Lord will come and rest upon him. These are the same words, the same phrases, the same images. The Spirit is coming to rest upon this Jesus. This Jesus is the one who will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord descends upon him. Now, another image that's a little bit here in Matthew, but it comes to us more in some of the other gospel accounts that you're familiar with. But in some of the other accounts, it says that the Spirit descends like a dove and it hovers over Jesus. So it, it comes down like a, like a dove and it, it's, it, it's hovering over the waters of baptism. Now, this one's a little harder to connect, but for people who were saturated in the Old Testament, what, they would have seen this. In the Old Testament, there's another place where the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. It's not the waters of baptism, but it's the waters of creation. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Hebrew word that's used here for hover is, is a bird-like image. So later, generations later, rabbis would look back and they picture like a dove or a bird hovering over the waters of creation, which is drawing your mind back to the very first pages of the Old Testament where creation begins. And now all of a sudden you have the Spirit resting upon the Son Jesus and, and it's hovering over the waters once again. But what happens when the Spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis chapter 1? Creation. God begins to speak and he declares goodness. And so it's the biblical author's way of saying that New creation is about to occur. New beginnings, new covenant, new life. Just like on the first pages of the Old Testament, new crea creation began about. Now we're at the beginning of the New Testament and God is about to start creating again. New life, people being born again, being made new in Christ. So all of this creation imagery is beginning to flood. Now remember what I said, what happens when the Spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis? God speaks forth and begins to create and he declares his goodness. 
What do you have here? The Father speaking. You hear the voice, but rather than declaring the goodness of creation, the Father's voice says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. New beginnings, new life, the beginning of making all things new. This is Matthew's way of telling you this Jesus is not some ordinary man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just just a Messiah figure. This is the return of the God of Israel in the power and presence of the Son Jesus. It's not just some ordinary guy. And John prepares us for this with this message, this powerful message of you better get right with God. You better get right with God. And that phrase, right with God, is st- we still use that today, right? Like, hey, man, I need to get right with God when you know you're blowing it. Or you're about to do something stupid. I'm about to go hang gliding, man. They say it's safe, but man, I want to make sure I'm right with God. Everyone want to get right with God before they do something dumb. It's like, okay. And, but there's a truth to that. There's, there's this sense in which we want to be right with God and John steps on the scene and challenges Israel. He's not just calling Gentiles to come get baptized. He's saying, Israel, just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're right with God. Repent and bear good fruit. That's a scary message because again, doesn't matter if you're raised Christian, don't, doesn't even matter if you're sitting in the pew on church on a Sunday morning. You must repent, confess your sins, trust Jesus. The other scarier thing is this idea that comes about upon examination of oneself. If you examine yourself and you, you really, like, really are brave enough to consider yourself, you realize that, man, I don't... It's not even about bearing good fruit. I don't even know if I'm a good tree. I don't even know if I'm a good tree. Forget bearing some good fruit. I don't even know if I'm a good tree. And, and, and this is uh, offensive to the modern ear, and we never like to talk about it because we all just convince, con- convince ourselves how good of people we are. But it's like, man, if, if I look at my life, I've done a lot of bad stuff. And on top of that, people think they're such good people um, but you, you don't realize how hard it is to be a good person until doing the right thing has a consequence. Like doing the right, like, trying to get good grades in fifth grade. You get rewarded for it. People cheer you on type of thing. You don't know what moral fortitude you have until you have to do something good and it will cost you everything. It's like, man, I don't, I don't, don't even know if, if I'm a good tree. And then when you read the scriptures and the standards at which it sets out for being a good tree, you go, oh man, I'm, I'm in trouble. Like the ax is going to come for me. And you get a hint of this in John himself. When John sees Jesus, what does John say? I need to be baptized by you. John the Baptist, the holy prophet, the forerunner, the Elijah to come, recognizes that in the presence of Jesus, he is too sinful, you need to baptize me. So if John the Baptist doesn't make the cut, you don't make the cut either. You just don't. 
You're not as righteous as John the Baptist was, even if you ate the locust. And so there's a sense of despair and hopelessness, like who, who can measure themselves against God Almighty, against the Holy One? Who can bear fruit in light of that? Now, there's a biblical author who also writes another gospel. His name is John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle. And he records the words of Jesus. And the, some of the words, that, the words that he records will give us like the secret to unlocking this, this mystery, this problem. How can one possibly measure up? How can one possibly bear good fruit? Listen to the words of Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now there's something incredibly discouraging with that at first, but then even more encouraging. Discouraging, apart from Christ, you've got nothing. You cannot bear fruit apart from him. It doesn't work that way. So you can't go to John the Baptist down at the river and say, man, I'm going to pull myself up by my moral bootstraps. I'm such a good person. Watch all my fruit grow. Jesus says, apart from me, it doesn't work. The good news is, is that if you abide in him, it's not just will you bear fruit? It's no, you will bear fruit. When you abide in him, you will bear fruit. Because in that union, it is no longer you mustering up the energy or the nourishment or power to do that act of bearing fruit. You are now in union with the true branch, with the true vine. And it's his rootstock, his trunk, his root system that is now giving you sustenance and life and spiritual power. And you will bear fruit. You will. And this is why the test of fruit is so important. It's not like, sure, look, you need to have all these good works to justify yourself before God. It's if you're in union with Christ, you're gonna make fruit. Now, for some of us, as I joked earlier, it's a little itty bitty crab apple. But there's still something there. There's evidence that shows you know Jesus. And we do so much, and rightfully so, to emphasize grace and the free gift and you know if you've come to this church for a long time, that's like so central to us. But so many Christians, when feeling an ounce of conviction of sin, will immediately just talk about, eh, yeah, I'm saved by grace, not no big deal. That's not the attitude of the Christian. We want to bear fruit. We want to be pleasing to our Lord. Now there's another image that makes sense of this. And it's an image that we're kind of divorced from because of the world that we, that we live in. We're kind of divorced from the food-making process, but it was all, used all throughout the Old Testament. It's still used today. It's that of grafting. And so grafting is where you take the stump or the rootstock of a tree that's got a, it's like good, healthy rootstock, real good, real powerful. And what you do is you wound it. You cut into it. And then you take a branch from another tree and put that branch into the wound of the other rootstock. And you leave it in there and you tighten it up, and the hope is that when those heal, they'll fuse together. And that's actually what occurs for the most part if done right. The branch from another tree now becomes fused with a different rootstock. 
It's in union. It's been grafted in. And this is what happens when you trust in Jesus. You get grafted in to the stump of Jesse, the stump that is righteous and true and powerful and will bear good fruit. And you're grafted in, and it's no longer just your energy or your power or your strength that's producing fruit. That fruit is coming about because you are a part of a different root system. And you're getting your nourishment from him. Now, some of you, sanctification looks differently. Christian living looks differently. It's harder. It's slower. There's seasons where there's not as much fruit. There's seasons where there's a lot of fruit. But at the end of the day, if you're grafted into Jesus, there will be something to show for it. There's going to be something, even if just a little. And so as we transition to communion and close, I want to give two challenges to do to two different types of people in the room. First, for those of you who are Christians, um, it can get easy to stop desiring to bear more and more good fruit. Let's say you've been a Christian 12 years, and you reach this point, last season, man, I made 15 great oranges. I think that's it. I think I'm just going to make 15 oranges every year. Kind of stop right there, just chill. It's like, you know, 15. You know, 15. And what I want you to know is that the Christian always desires to produce more and more fruit. Not to earn anything, not to, to, to prove yourself to God or, or receive salvation, but because you love Jesus. And so I want you to remember and recall your first love. Our greatest love, our greatest treasure is Jesus. And I've been made to be in union with him, grafted into him. And so, Lord, help me to bear more good fruit, not to earn anything, but because I love you. Because I love you, so I want to bear more good fruit. And my challenge is to, to those who are not Christian in the room. Jesus is merciful and righteous and true and offers grace freely. But at the end of the day, you will have to answer to him. You will give an account. And he's on his threshing floor. And he has a winnowing fork. And he's separating the wheat from the chaff. And so you don't want to wait another day. You want to trust in him and repent and get grafted in and be in union with him. Your life changed and beginning to bear good fruit. And I know that's a message that people don't want to hear. But Jesus said that, not me. Apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. And so you have to deal with him and answer to him. And so after service today, though, as always, there'll be people willing to pray for you. If, if you're at that place, come talk to one of them. Talk to a friend or someone who brought you a family member who's a Christian. Don't, don't go another day. The threshing floor is there. The axe is laid to root. Those images are warnings on our behalf. They're for us, not against us. And so, I thought the worship team was coming up as we... <laughs> if you're a believer, desire to grow more fruit. If you're not a believer... Trust in Jesus today. Now let's stand as we take communion.
Jesus' body broken on our behalf. You are grafted in to that tree. His power, his energy, his sustenance, his roots come to you. And so today we remember his life laid down, our substitute dying on our behalf. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. We have a tradition here of saying that this is our way of pledging our allegiance till Jesus returns. And so, Lord, you gave grace freely, and now help us to be faithful by bearing fruit and declaring your death and resurrection until you return. Father, our prayer is that this church, both corporately and individually, that we would bear fruit. And we want to bear fruit to honor you, but we also want to bear fruit so that the world looks upon our good deeds, our good works, our good fruit, and in turn says, we want to know the Lord you serve. May our works in this world point to your love. Lord, we give you thanks today. We lift the name of your son Jesus up today, and we thank you that we have been grafted into him. We have union, and we are part of your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.